how are we documenting? How are we using the things we do on an annual basis, like cyber maturity assessments or cybersecurity framework reviews and looking at maturity assessments? We're using those formal tools. How are we, what is that tie to, to those assessments in our pen tests to what is our security footprint or our security posture overall? And how does that get tied to these public statements we're making? Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford, president and CISO at Alan Alford Consulting. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Evan Wolf, partner at Crowell and & Mooring and my favorite cyber attorney. Evan has led and managed hundreds of investigations, including cybersecurity, data breach, insider threats, security incidents, suspected terrorist incidents. Evan also teaches a class at Columbia University in New York City on great hacks in cybersecurity. Evan is someone I consider to be a true friend, and I'm not the only CISO with whom he is good friends. Evan stays tight with the CISO community. He has never lost sight of his cybersecurity roots and, dare I say, is still worthy of the title hacker. Evan is my go-to whenever the intersection of law and cybersecurity arises, and as such, he was the first one I thought about to chat with on the show about the SEC and SolarWinds situation. So for our listeners... Uh, Evan has done two webinars and one AMA on this very subject today alone. <laughs> so, A, we are grateful to have him, and B, forgive him if our questions make him cross-eyed. He's probably answered a bunch of these already 100 times today. So, Evan, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Alan, it's always an honor and privilege, and you also are a true friend and my favorite podcaster that I'm speaking to today. <laughs> <laughs> well put. Well put. All right, so I posted on LinkedIn and I asked the crowd, what questions do you have? I said, I got a lawyer. He's coming. We're going to discuss this stuff. Um, and I've got other lawyers in my followership. And one of them asked, this was Dawson Lightfoot, was basically like, uh, Dawson Lightfoot, I should say, was basically asking, what kind of lawyer is this guy? Um, so so give us a little background on who you are, uh, what, your, you know, what your story is. And obviously, I, I would assume there's probably a disclaimer involved as well. But yeah, set if, us if, up. If we don't, if lawyers don't start off every every time they talk with a disclaimer, we instantaneously combust and uh, and burst into flames, and it only becomes interesting if we're on TV. Um, but no, so first of all, nothing I'm going to say is considered legal advice. Um, I do represent many companies on this and similar issues, so th these are all sort of general discussions that I'm giving and, and background. So please please speak to your lawyer. But to that point, and, and Dawson's question is an important one because there are many different types of lawyers. While there is sort of one type of CISO, you know, all good ones and ones that try to work hard to defend their companies, you know, I, there are really important SEC lawyers that, that have been sort of spent their career focused on, on, the, on, on evaluating and understanding the SECs. Most of them actually worked at the SEC at one point. Some did not. I've, I have a bunch of really good SEC lawyers at my law firm. I've spoken to them and worked with them on it, but I am not an SEC lawyer. Okay. You know, Dawson also talked about other types of, of, of litigators, which I am also not a litigator. Um, I, uh, I, I once talked to my wife about it and she threatened to, marry, to divorce me if I, uh, if I ever went to court. So I don't do that. I'm a cyber, <laughs> I'm, I'm a cyber lawyer. This is all I've ever done for 17 years since I, I left my career as a technologist to be a lawyer 17 years ago, which is I help companies manage incidents. I help them when there's been a, a security incident, a data breach, or anything in between. I help companies 
proactively manage risk by doing things like tabletops, putting together incident response plans, thinking about compliance with regulations. And I also work with their, their you know, 30 other lawyers in my group, litigators that, that defend companies when they, they need to. But more important to this to this point, because, you know, both the company SolarWinds and, and, and Mr. Tim Brown, you know, have a lot of lawyers around him. I'm sure they're very good lawyers. In fact, I know they're good lawyers that that are that are advising him and defending the company, and and it's important to understand that you know what we have is a complaint from the SEC mm-hmm. against Solar Winds and against Mr. Brown, and like all complaints, there are always two sides to every issue. Um, everyone, thankfully, in this country is innocent until proven guilty. And thank you for pointing and, that one out. There and, have been and, so many armchair quarterbacks already ready to accuse, and I'm like, guys, this is step one of a long journey. Yeah, and exactly. And so, you know, we have to see what, you know, uh, uh, and I, I'm not faulting the government, but every lawyer has, has sort of, you know, one one of the things we take when we when we become an officer of the court, which all lawyers are, is to zealously defend our clients. Mm-hmm. My clients are largely CISOs because my whole practice has been sitting between a CISO and a GC, mm-hmm. which can be super fun or super awkward, depending on which company. But if you're a government lawyer, your job is to, you know, enforce and and and, and your government, your your client is the government. So sure. the fact that they are making what 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 is very good reading for 68 pages or maybe 60 pages of very good reading uh, and, and make a compelling case, that's their job. Mm-hmm. I don't believe it all because I know there's another side. I, I know that, you know, not everything written in there, you know, probably has a different perspective or in the information that they relied upon. But there is some very important, you know, trends and ideas. And if you look at sort of not this this case in, in and of itself or this complaint in and of itself, but you look at, you know, what's what's happened with other CISO actions in the last few few months and few right. years. We, you have to understand we've had a few things of late. Yeah, so you have to understand that there's really a, a trend in sort of the role of the CISO is evolving. And that's my mantra is, you know, is, is you know, we, we all must evolve. And that's sort of what I'm, I'm trying to help companies do by continuing to counsel the, the lawyers and the CISOs to think differently around now this, this area of material risk. But it's really about what is the role in the CISO of a company. I would say, you know, we're going from eight point font to 14 point font in, uh, we're still Times New Roman, in, in the title of the CISO. So it's getting bigger. The C is increasing. It, it is. It is. Now, and that, and that brings me up, actually, the first question, I've got a lot of folks on LinkedIn, and I'm not even going to bother naming everyone because this one came up a, a half dozen times in different ways, was thoughts about insurance. People talked about DNO insurance, directors and officers insurance, which the company provides and, and adds the CISO to the policy saying you are a director and officer and therefore protected under this insurance policy. And then there's errors and omissions. Which, you know, as a, as a solo practitioner, as a VC, so like I got E&O insurance out the wazoo. Um, but, but the real million dollar question is for a corporate CISO, should they be looking at this? Should they be insisting on DNO? Should they be insisting on E&O? Like, where does this stand? So uh, I'll start off for the podcast listeners with the, the, the uh, axiom, insurance is good. Uh, and, yes. you know, insurance is a way of externally managing risk. And there are different types of risks CISOs face. So I 100% agree. And and I've 
had probably 20 conversations in the past week with with lawyers and and CISOs around, you know, uh, checking to see if if they are covered under the current DNO policy. Is it side A coverage? What type of coverage is it? Is the coverage equal to other officers? Are they actually considered an officer of the company? All those are really important things because that is one of the primary things that will help a, a CISO if and when there is an enforcement action. But that's not the only type of insurance you need to think about. You also need to think about your cyber policy. Yep. And, and the cyber policy and why that's important in this case is because, you know, part of the evaluation of materiality has to be the economic impact. And even if it's a massive incident, even if you have to end up paying, you know, far too much ransom payments, which would be anything over a dollar in my mind, you, you, you know, and, and you can have a claim and you are completely covered by your insurance policy. Right. And all you are out is your deductible. Then that lessens the likelihood. It doesn't, once again, materiality is a multi-factored. It's like a multi-headed hydra. It's a multi-factored analysis, but, but that would lessen the likelihood of it because there is no real or the, the economic impact is significantly decreased. Sure. And, and lastly, the question that I get asked the most is, should I get a, a, an insurance policy, a personal insurance policy that would cover right. any liability? And so like you do for your E&O or, you know, my wife's a therapist, we have an umbrella policy, you know, because as I point out to many people, there are two types of people, those that see therapists or marry them. I'm the latter. So, so <laughs> same here. My wife's so, a psychologist. <laughs> so you and I have the same uh, same problems uh, and, and, and the same benefits. So anyway, but but the problem is with uh, cyber insurance for and, I've, and I'm not once again, I'm not an insurance lawyer. We have right. a large insurance practice at my firm. I've talked to uh, talked to them a few times about this question, and we've actually spoken to some insurance and underwriters. And, and once again, we haven't spoken to everyone. I'm not speaking on behalf of any insurance industry. But what they've generally said is it would be really hard and really expensive to write a personal policy that would cover a CISO for the types of risks they would face at work. And I generally right. think that's fine. That, that, that makes sense. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't have an umbrella policy. You should. It doesn't mean you shouldn't maybe even talk to your insurance agent about it. I just think that would be a hard policy to get. And you shouldn't rely on that primarily. You should be relying on your DNO policy and, and your cyber policy. Yeah. And, uh and, and the backstop of all this is, is you know, are you, are you indemnified? Is the company going to stand behind you if there's an right. incident? And those are, those are your primary tools when it comes to insurance. But as I said at the beginning of this very long-winded answer, since I get paid by the word, you know, insurance is good, and that's a critical part of this process. Yep. I love that. I love that. Now, now one of the other questions that came up too, and I, I think we've uh, that's a great answer on insurance. So for the listeners, the summary there that I took away was, DNO good, ENO good, personal policy, eh, eh, too hairy, don't even bother. Just hope, you know, hope and or negotiate that DNO is enforced on your end and that the company is fighting on your behalf insurance-wise as opposed to you having to go out and insure yourself. Yep. Um, okay, so disclosure. This was the other big question that a bunch of people asked about was, what does disclosure mean? And, and I'll, I'll tell you one story that came up with one of the questions. We even I even got involved. We had a little bit of a dialogue about it was, you know, I, I have publicly made the statement since this episode occurred. I said there is no company, capital N-O, no company, all caps, whose public and private statements about security would be 100% aligned ever by the very definition of what we do as security practitioners. In other words, 
I meet with a client and I tell them, oh, yeah, actually, I got this one critical flaw in my VPN right now that, that, that you know, China can get in in a heartbeat and we're plugging it as we speak and it should be plugged by Friday. I could share that with a client and say, we've got a VPN issue that came up. I'm not going to go out on the Internet and say, hey, I got a wide open VPN problem over here, folks. The, the very nature of what I do as a security practitioner, as a CISO, is protect my company. Screaming about my vulnerabilities from the rooftops makes zero sense. And therefore, I don't think anybody is going to be 100 percent aligned, public and private. And yet this whole case is all about disclosure, is all about if you read the 68 pages, it's all about said X in public, said Y in private, said X in public, said Y in private. So obviously disclosure, there's a thing there. And and I'm curious what your take on it is because, I you know, I know my answer is it could never be 100%, but obviously we got to try our best to align them. Like, what's your take? Howdy, y'all. Alan Alford here to tell you about Alan Alford Consulting. After being a CISO five times, I decided to launch my own cybersecurity consulting practice. My cybersecurity career has spanned companies ranging from five to 50,000 employees with revenues ranging from 2 million on up to 10 billion. I have worked in the cybersecurity industry itself, telecommunications, manufacturing, education, legal, data services, defense contracting, and for a number of SaaS providers as well. What I can do for your organization is to help you better manage, measure, report on, and more importantly, execute on your cybersecurity program. I have helped clients employ cybersecurity frameworks, conduct maturity assessments, develop board reports, and even to draft comprehensive three-year plans with budget and headcount projection to meet compliance and maturity goals. I can help you with anything from an assessment to comprehensive execution. I also offer retainer packages. Find out more at allenalford.com. That's A-L-L-A-N-A-L-F-O-R-D.com. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a great question, and obviously one I have heard a few times today. Um, so, I, I, and, and I think it's something, you know, I, I, uh, one of my favorite conferences I've have attended historically is, you know, art, art and science or art, whatever, whatever the art into are. science, right? Art into science. Thank you. Um, because it reminds us that defending is as much an art form as it is a science form. That's my, that was my interpretation when I first yep. went to the conference in, in the uh, great state of Texas. Um, and, and, and really what, so what you're, and you're right. No, no to, you know, I guess if we look at a, if we look at a financial record, if you look at a balance sheet, you could kind of say all balance sheets are the same. The good thing about numbers have consistencies, but networks really don't. I mean, mm -hmm. I, you know, uh, having spent 20 plus years working in cybersecurity, if I've seen one network, I've seen one network. And so security programs around them are inherently different. But that doesn't mean that disclosure shouldn't have some consistency around it. Okay. And, and the first is, you know, and I, and I think these are some of the takeaways from, from, the, from the decision from the from what I read, I read the complaint the first or third or fifth time, is is that first of all companies need to be measured around formal statements they're making, meaning they need to have a clear and repeatable or defensible approach to to making those statements. If you are saying that you know you 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 are you know defending against advanced persistent threat actors, APT threat actors, you know, and and you feel that that is a, a risk. Well, what are what are the things that you are doing to do that? Is is you know is it zero trust? Are you implementing, you know, tightening our identity and access management across your network? So you really need to have sort of the indices of evidence as you are making those statements and have it be documented. And that's mm -hmm. a big piece here. Is you know, uh, you know, having having 
you know, been sitting between CISOs and GCs my entire career, you know, how, you know, we kind of speak different languages still, and Mm -hmm. it's not because, you know, we speak Klingon and they speak Romulan, um, but it's really because of the, the, the nature of how we think about security and how we really need to, you know, and that's what I think this case is really, or these sets of cases, because I think we need to look at it in, in context, yep. are really forcing us to think about is how, how are we documenting, how are we using the things we do on an annual basis, like cyber maturity assessments or cybersecurity framework reviews and looking right. at maturity assessments. We're using those formal tools. How are we, what is that tie to, to those assessments in our pen tests to what is our security footprint or our security posture overall? And how does that get tied to these public statements we're making, whether it's a certification or a statement to the SEC or to DOD if you're a government contractor or if you're handling PHI for, as part of your high trust assessment. Yeah. In some ways, they're all the same. They are all CISOs sort of saying that, you know, we are, we are assessing in a in a material way and i'm sorry it, we are assessing in a technical way what is the security risk and then we're conveying that to others so they can make a broader decision about and whether that's a material risk yeah and it's the and the others is the other important piece of this that you know CISOs don't exist in a in a vacuum thankfully thankfully because, yeah I, I've, I've seen <laughs> i saw a couple of the CISOs my good friends uh for that are large CISOs during COVID and when they had spent more than a couple months by themselves it was not pretty um but but uh I, I say that jokingly but in in reality you know they they aren't the ones deciding materiality it has to be they are they are providing inputs to that as are CFOs and mm-hmm. GCs and and your outside auditors and your audit committee and sometimes your outside counsel that specialize in in, in these issues right uh, not me but others and so you really need to take all of that advice synthesize it together and and then you know the decisions of materiality come from that but it can't be you know this idea that you know a CISO decides this independently Right. is is just not 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 true not accurate yeah. um yeah but but it the, is but this is a lesson learned that we need to do a better job of documenting you know look having grown up in the security community writing long reports and documenting everything i did when i was running red teams and things like that that was not like the most fun part of my job right um that's, so anyway that that's where we probably need to hire more people that like to write yeah, I like I like that, and you you named a few things in specific that 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 were a, a degree of detail greater than I thought you might give, which was really fascinating to me. You talked about like framework compliance. You talked about what is essentially cybersecurity performance management. You talked about pen test results. If we can agree that we're going to broad strokes, because I think about it today as a CISO, I get a pen test, I, I pay for it, they run it. They give me back the results, and I see that I've got, I'm going to make up numbers now, three mediums, one high, and zero criticals, or whatever it comes out to. And I then have customers that want to know, did you run your pen test? Why, yes, I did. We want to see the results. No, I'm going to give you an executive summary. Like, already today, I don't just hand out willy-nilly, here's every specific vulnerability I have, but I will summarize it, and I will tell them. We have a high-level overview that says we only had three mediums and one high, and there were no criticals. The high is being addressed as we speak. Like, I'm already taking concrete specific and summarizing it when I speak to one client. If I consistently do that with that one client, with all clients, and then with the 10K and the 8K and leverage that same tool and that same technique at that same level, then I've created consistency. I've created transparency. I've created honesty. And yet I'm not telling the world how to hack me, right? 
So um, without treating you like my student, because I'm not going to give you a grade based on this podcast. So, right on. Although, although you will always get an A in my mind. Um, I, I do want to unpack and maybe correct a couple of things you okay. said. Okay. First of, first of all, um, you know, I always tell CISOs that everything they do should be in, the, in, in their role as the CISO of the company. You know, right. that, that means don't act as a CFO, don't make financial decisions. Right. And so, right. and also when you think about risk, you need to think about sort of, you know, I, I always use the analogy, risk is like water and you can't carry too much of it. And you need to sort of share it with everyone you can because right. it's heavy. Um, but, on, and specifically in what you said, when you're doing a pen test, the first part that I would sort of think differently is I think pen tests sometimes can be done under privilege because if you are doing a pen test because you are concerned about either legal or regulatory issues or you mm-hmm. think there could mm-hmm. be potential litigation, um, you know, that there are times where a pen test and, and once again, the courts haven't spoken to this. So not to all to all your listeners that, that, that are, that are going to start looking for, you know, Lexa citations on on the use of privilege and pen tests. I have not searched it. I don't know if there's extensive references there you know we all all the cybersecurity lawyers that i i talk to and work with have really thought about the capital one case which did sort of speak to privilege around normal business practices where it said if you're doing a normal business practice that is not privilege and if you're doing an you know something like an incident response that that could be privilege mm-hmm. because of that so where pen tests fit into that Mm. is is untested but i think it is a good practice and i think there is some some legitimacy to to trying to do it under privilege but regardless of 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 the of the use of the attorney client privilege it's really important that when you do a penetration test because this is where i've spent a lot of time unfortunately looking at at uh at, at cases where companies are being prosecuted by the government fairly mm-hmm. or unfairly i would probably favor the latter um is is that we we look at sort of what what's the important piece of it not how many criticals you know how many unpatched how many critical volumes do they find in a pen test right it, there's always going to be some whole number greater than one if it isn't right. it's not a you know that's just that's just the reality of operating a network it's really what you do with those results i call it the burn down list what yeah. are you doing to make sure over that reasonable amount of time month, six months, year, what are you doing to tighten down the, the critical vulnerabilities that you've identified or how are you evolving your, your, your vulnerability risk management process mm-hmm. so that when you do your next pen test, it just isn't the same rinse and repeat findings because that's right. where it becomes, right. you know, systemic risks to companies. So it's going to be, you're going to have, you know, I've, I've, I've almost in the hundreds of pen tests that I've been a part of, I've never, I think, the amount of times that I haven't found a critical vuln or or they haven't scanned and found some vulnerability is is probably a couple handfuls, if that, because that's just the reality. But how you manage that risk going forward, that's the issue that I think really this points to is, is we need to think about that systemic risk in a way similar to how, not that I want to make all CISOs accountants, but similar to how accountants think about the repeatability of, mm-hmm. of, of their of their measures. And that's where, um, you know, the good news is we are getting, you know, technology is coming to the rescue. If you think about the evolution of, of where we are with, with sort of GRC, government risk and compliance in general, yep. I think we're seeing more and more startups that are thinking about how do we document, how do we demonstrate, how yep. do we make these things repeatable? I think the security vendor community the yep. offensive testing community is getting a lot more educated around how to write up these reports in ways that are are not 
excuse my uh, my my DC version of Texas slang, a, a flaming bag of dog poop left on your front door, right. which is sometimes how I view these reports. If it's just yep. creates a bunch of risk that you can't mitigate, and and if it does, if you do have these problems, then you need to disclose, 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 and disclose to that means sometimes having to report up, uh, even if that could you know have an impact to the company and try to mitigate as long as you're disclosing. And sometimes that means companies will need to disclose externally as we mm-hmm. saw during, mm-hmm. during the use of the AKs during recent incidents around move it around solar winds, every, you know, that's what we're seeing a clear trend that disclosure back to your, cause I, I, I did enough media training that I provide the answer. I have not the question, not the answer to the question that was asked, but back to the beginning part of your question, disclosure shouldn't necessarily make a company more vulnerable. This isn't sort of making right. you the the uh, the gazelle on the African plane that's right. that's moving slower than everyone. What it should do is identify where you have a sort of material issue and what are you doing to correct it. And that's where right. sort of right. the 10Ks and 10Qs around what are your risk factors? How do you know that, yes, look, we are a target because of what we do, but we are also building security programs into it. And, and the last piece I'll say on that is really when we find those gaps, whether it's, uh, you know, a potential person that identifies something that is a, a vulnerability or a weakness or a gap in, in your security planning, what this really points to is how you address that is incredibly important. Right. You know, just like, you know, at home or your car, you know, uh, I assume you're from Texas or so you've, you've seen a truck or been in a truck or maybe even own a truck you know, or own a car, if a light goes on, you don't just sit there and ignore it and ignore it and hope it goes right. away. You right. actually, you know, figure out what's going wrong. Yep. Somebody actually decorated their uh, their entire porch with jack-o'-lanterns that they carefully carved out the check engine light, the oil pressure light. Like each jack-o'-lantern was a glowing dashboard icon of, of doom. So that's um, what CISOs need to do. They need to have their own set of uh, glowing icons of doom. I like it. I like it. We have All to right. start a pumpkin. We have to start a new pumpkin carving CISO there we go. for next year. I love it. I love it. So so this ties into what you said at the very beginning and, and ties into what you're saying now. This this whole idea about the role of the CISO in all of this. Like some of the questions on LinkedIn, people were asking crazy stuff about, you know, well, what about CMO? What about CFO? What about CEO? You know, and, and, and a lot of these questions weren't crazy at all. A lot of them were like, hey, there's multiple signatories on a thing, or maybe the CISO reports to the CEO who signs the thing, and the thing is the 8K or the 10K or the 10Q or, you know, whatever it might be. So the role of the CISO in all of this is part of why I think a lot of the CISOs are twitchy right now, because it, it, it's kind of like, you know, well, was it the CISO or was it the CEO? Do we know what the tension was between the two of them? Do we know what the reporting was between the two of them? So, so what's your take on that? The role of the CISO in all of this? So once again, I, 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 uh, I'm not their counsel. I don't work there. I don't work at the yep. SEC. I don't honestly know what that interaction is. As I said at the beginning of, of the podcast, yeah, of course not. I, I know there's always know. two sides to every every story, and having been doing incident response for a living for the last 17 years uh, and working on some pretty significant incidents. You know, I know that that the CISO is often just because, you know, companies in general and in, 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 during an incident, they are sort of at a heightened crisis state. Of course. And, and they don't always, you know, your, your, your job, you're not thinking rationally, you're not moving, you know, moderately. You are oftentimes, you know, trying to, you know, you have, you have, you know, 
uh, threat actors on your network. You're trying to get them out. You're trying to preserve evidence. Right. You're, you're trying to sort of, you know, communicate with third parties and internally all at the same time. And the assembly and, line is down and the pressure keeps coming from the phone call every five minutes to say, why aren't we back up yet? And, and you can't do all those things perfectly at the same time. Of and course so not. That, that is, that's the reality of, of, of incident response. But you do have to go back to first principles of you know, first of all, making sure that you are, you know, identifying and, and identifying paths of access of what is the overall risk. Um, I do think there's an interesting question about attribution as it ties to risk, um, you know, and the SEC, uh, both in, in this case and others seem to be focused on on attribution. I, I don't know if I really understand understand that because I you know, I view attribution as something that the government does. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, actually, you know, when I'm working on an incident, if it's actually, uh, you know, an officer from the GRU or or, uh, or or someone from some other country or some, you know, element of scattered spider. I just right. know it's some third party that is accessing right. an unauthorized right. network, that is uh, in an unauthorized way accessing a network. And so right. that's where I, I, I do think that uh, that really – you know, back back to the the point of you know of, of the evolution of the CISO risk, uh, the evolution of the CISO role and yep. and CISO risk. I guess that wasn't a a, a Freudian statement. Um, it's really you know they 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 are growing and that we need to define their roles around all the certifications that we talked about earlier. We mm-hmm. also need to think about you know CISOs are are thinking about sort of. Where, where, where are their peers? I always view this as sort of who are the CISO's best friends in an organization. And they have to be legal, audit, compliance, you know, uh, risk. risk management, communications, mm-hmm. insurance. All of those are, and, and CISOs are, you know, and this is where I see them sort of like standing up and growing into their suits. And I do think, uh, you know, CISOs, even though I'm, I'm joining, even though this is a podcast, I'm wearing a shirt with a collar on it, which is a unusual occurrence for me. But I think it's important that, you know, CISOs sort of grow into their roles. I'm not saying yeah. they have to go shop at the Nordstrom sale every year, but I do think they need to think about, you know, what, what it is or who their peers are and how they manage that risk. Because increasingly, if they if they realize that, hey, we don't have to think about interpreting disclosure laws we just have to identify what type of access we had and use our counsel or outside counsel to interpret disclosure laws. Right. Then you're sharing the risk and the lawyer's doing his job. Right. The CISO's doing their job and, and, and the world's a more balanced place. And that's what we have to sort of, especially during an incident, mm-hmm. you know, I, I always, the analogy I always use is a steady hand on the tiller because we need to make sure people stay in their roles. And yeah. the most important way of, of demonstrating all this is documenting it in your incident response plan. Mm-hmm. I'm in the middle of two incidents that kicked off yesterday and today. And the question I've asked three times on calls is what page on the incident response plan are we on? Where are we? Are we following mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. what process? I know we want to call the CEO and tell them all the bad things that have happened, but have we gone to the two intermediary steps that we're required to do before that? And right. that's the piece that, you know, to be honest, this is where I think CISOs will shine because, you know, this is where system engineering principles and and following processes, mm-hmm. which CISOs are inherently really good at doing, will will carry the day. But we need to sort of define that for ourselves. I like that. I like that. All right. Last question for you. Key takeaways. What's what's the you know, floor is yours now. I've been asking you the questions that I had that LinkedIn had. 
What do you think is the most important thing for the CISOs to hear about all this? Yeah, I mean, so we've, we've talked about a few of them, but the first is, you know, you know, really, it's really important that you make measured statements that you think about, um, you know, you don't exaggerate, you know, some people use the word puffery, but, right. but you really, you know, be careful. I mean, I almost am not saying, you know, every time you need to ask someone to go to the bathroom, you need to have talking points for that. But, but I do think, you know, the idea that if you're making outside statements to external statements to parties, whether it be at conferences or, or, or to shareholders, that you have sort of very good hygiene around that in terms mm-hmm. of making sure that things you're saying are defensible. And, and, uh, and, and so that, that is going to be a change and something that I think is important because other parts, other, other sort of risk, high risk parts of the community do that. Um, second is sort of how you certify uh, practices that are in place and how you go and make those certifications. I think that's really important. Uh, and the last is really clear lines of communication mm-hmm. and, and escalation. Um, I think, you know, this is an opportunity since we're both married to our, our better halves or both people that force us to communicate with them more clearly on a regular basis. Yes. Companies should also be doing this and staying in. And one thing I've always told CISOs is stay in your role. Don't put on the Superman cape at any point during the incident. Just stay in the role of the CISO. And right. So, Anyway, I do, while I know this is, we're still in the shock and awe moment, I do think, you know, moments like this is a, when we come together, hence why I've been doing my serial podcast and, uh, and, and AMAs in our community. But, but second of all, you know, we will learn and evolve and and get stronger. And I, I fundamentally agree with that. I've, you know, I see the improvements that, that we've made, uh, when I think about, you know, where we were, you know, 15 years ago, five years ago, a few mm-hmm. even months ago. And where we are now is that, you know, this, this is, this is a, a bit of a surprise to our community, but we will evolve and we will, we will survive. Yeah. It's an important point that, you know, from my take, and this is just my personal opinion, it's not like the government is out to destroy all CISOs, right? Like they're trying to improve the situation. They really are. And, I think a lot of us freak out when anybody gets named, when anybody gets accused, when somebody's name is on a on a filing or a you know you know Joe Sullivan, Tim Brown, whatever it might be. People tend to freak out about that, but at the end of the day, bigger picture anyway, I think I'm with you that that there's going to be some evolution and growth that comes out of this regardless of how it all shakes out individually and in these specific moments, I think it's all a trend towards the greater good. And now if I was Tim or Joe, I wouldn't say that, but you know, that's, you know, that's, that's kind of where I fell on it. And, and so, and if, and what I pointed out and probably where uh, I'll end is what I pointed out to, uh, to some colleagues when they, especially some SEC colleagues and actually on a previous AMA I did and, and to a couple of clients is that if you take the company's name off the complaint and, and you just read the, the accusations and the allegations that are made in it, and they are just that, accusations and allegations, you know, that could be said for almost any company. Any CISO that would read that would have a, that could be me too. That, mm-hmm. could, that, that is a description of what may be happening in my, my, my network and, and, I, and I, you know, have- Or disclosed. in my company or, yeah. And so that's where, you know, I, I really do think that there's some, some, some greater learning here. But anyway, I, you know, thank you. It's always a, an honor to be your friend. 
Mr. Alford, and uh, and to be on your podcast. So I appreciate, I appreciate you, man. Thank you so much for coming out. And I'm gonna I'm gonna sling one last zinger. I told you it was the last question. We had a question. It was tongue in cheek. <laughs> do you know a list of countries that don't have extradition treaties with the U.S. for CISOs? I do not, and I don't want any of my friends and CISOs to get extradited. Um, I, I don't suggest. Once again, this is a civil complaint. Nothing is criminal. No one is going to jail. Please don't break any laws. Please take care of yourself. Take care of each other. And, uh, and let's focus on getting better together. And let's, and let's stay home and not go to scary places either. <laughs> Agreed. So. Fantastic. Well, Evan, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch, folks. That was Evan Wolf, a good friend and a, and a brilliant mind when it comes to this intersection of cyber and legal. Thank you so much for sharing your, uh, your insights with us. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. <laughs>